Well, good morning. On the first Sunday of the month, it is our custom as a church to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we try to organize the entire service around that. It's a very important time. It's a time when we recommit ourselves to the new covenant of which we are a part and are recognized as a part through baptism. And together, those two covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are what kind of create the boundary markers within the church which the church exists. Um, and on the first Sunday of the year, I've tried to use it as a time of covenant renewal, and that is not simply the new covenant, which we renew in a sense every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's a time to renew our church covenant And uh, in your worship folder, there is a copy of our church covenant. We'll have you take that out sometime uh, later in the service and use it. I'd like to draw your attention to a passage. I'm going to speak on just two verses, but the passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read three verses. 1 Timothy, this is on page 992, I believe, if you have a Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let me note those last words, the 16th verse, are a confession. In fact, it's the only place in the Bible that calls something a confession, obviously a confession used by the early church. Literally, it says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And it states the gospel in six parts about the coming of Christ, his redemption, and and the ministry that went on after that. And that is used to uphold what we're going to look at this morning The first two verses, verses 14 and 15, let's pray before we look into that. Again, our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you invite us into your very presence where angels worship around your throne. John, in the Revelation chapter 4, looked, as it were, through an open door into the throne room of heaven and glimpsed what is going on at all times, at all times in history, even before history mysterious beings surround your throne and cry out your holiness and all is calm and secure in your very presence and regardless of whatever is shaking in our world at this time in our own hearts or lives we know that in your presence all is perfect peace we thank you you bid us to come in fact through jesus christ into your presence that you might teach us yourself you We ask that this morning you would do that by your spirit as we meet together here. and We entrust this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, marriage vows involve a series of statements that are very serious and they're meant to be taken very seriously. Nevertheless, we all know that the things that are spoken in marriage vows will be broken. They will not all be broken 
in the relationally devastating ways that they can be broken, but none of them are ever going to be kept exactly as they are stated and as they are intended. And I want you to consider just one sentence that I use when I'm marrying people, and I didn't just pull this out of the air. This is sort of an updating of the ancient wedding ceremony, and it's a scriptural statement, a promise that a, a person makes. I asked during the time of consent both the man and the woman to give consent to this statement. You are to make her or you are to make him, his welfare, your chief concern in life. You are to make her welfare your chief concern in life. And if you've been married more than 24 hours, you've broken that. <laughs> and everybody knows it. It's like it's part of human nature. Even the best of people, at least as the world is constituted presently, it's part of us to regularly make our own welfare our chief concern in life. And we do that to the exclusion of others over and over again every day. We're confronted with a choice between our welfare, our comfort, our satisfaction, our happiness, and the welfare of other people on a regular basis. And sometimes we make the right choice, and sometimes we make the wrong choice. And even when it comes to our spouse, we sometimes don't make the choice we said we would make on the day we got married. So you might ask, well, what's the use of wedding vows then? I mean, you're saying things, you're making promises that you know in advance you won't be able to keep. And, and I contend that wedding vows are incredibly important. Number one, they're a statement of intention. This is the kind of husband I want to be to you. This is the kind of wife I want to be. And, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, what flows out of that is it's a statement of direction in life. A person is saying, I intend to build the kind of relationship with you as we move through life that is characterized by growing love, growing commitment, sacrifice, fidelity. And let's face it, only public promises of that nature, that magnitude, are, are capable of providing the kind of glue that will truly hold people together through the storms of life. And make no mistake about it, marriage is the glue that holds all of society together. We live at a time when society is toying with that and only time will reveal the consequences. But marriage is the basis for all other institutions in life. According to the Bible, that is abundantly clear. Family grew immediately out of marriage. And from the Bible's perspective, what grew out of family is church. All that church is and all that Grace Church is in reality is family writ large. We're evidence that God has a people at least in one local community in the world. Now, in 2016, we as a church had existed for over 30 years, and at that point, we dissolved our membership and reestablished it based on a church covenant. And our church covenant is simply a list of scriptural ideas that are meant to identify how Christian people should relate to God, to each other, and to the world around and society around us. And like I said, a copy is included in your worship folder. We'll look at it later. But this covenant is meant to give clear tracks for us to run on when we think about what it means for us to live as Christians. It helps to identify our responsibilities and our privileges as members of a local church. And like the marriage covenant, it involves a series of public promises that we make to each other to be a church in this community. 
And like the marriage covenant, it includes a number of statements which when you're very serious about it, you realize I will not be able to keep those perfectly. Now this morning at the dawn of a new year, I'd like for us to reaffirm our covenant with each other and with God before God. And note that uh, this passage underlies two things about what it means to be the church, two uh, things that church life and fellowship gives to a person who confesses Christ. Now, the letter of 1 Timothy was written towards the end of Paul's life and ministry. If you read the New Testament, you come to the end of the book of Acts, which is an historical account of what happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar. We have to gather from the letters of the New Testament that he was released from from his uh, incarceration there, and he was free to ministry because a few books were written after that and before the time when he was put to death by Emperor Nero about 67 AD in the Colosseum. And this is one of those letters. In these two verses, he's writing to Timothy, who was a younger co-worker of his part of his apostolic mission of planting churches. It contains mostly directions to Timothy for how he ought to conduct the work and the things that he ought to pass on to the fledgling churches that had been planted in southern Turkey, a region of an area that was called Ephesus, and the churches around them that the church in Ephesus had planted. And in these two verses, he states very clearly what the purpose of the letter is. The purpose of the letter is stated right away, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So how one ought to behave in the household of God is the whole point of the letter. Now, that's not instructing Timothy, even though he says, I'm writing to you so that you might know how one ought to behave. But it's not telling Timothy how to behave specifically. There are things in the letter about that. But it's really telling him what he needs to know so that he can teach the believers in the churches how a person should behave in the church, in the household of God. And when it says you know, conduct, behavior in the household of God, it's not telling people, here's how you ought to behave in church, like in the church building, like telling the children not to run, you know, that kind of thing. By the way, What's the big deal with children running? I don't want the children to get hurt. And I saw a child this morning running a little too fast. I'll talk to the parent later. You know, watch. Wouldn't you rather have them be running and having fun here rather than those old people yelling at him and telling him this is too holy a place to run in? That's another subject, I guess, so we won't go into that. But conduct in the household of God is not about how to behave in church. There are appropriate and inappropriate ways to behave in certain meetings. But it means, as the letter bears out by its content over and over again, how to live as a Christian in a pagan culture. This is what you need to know, how to be the church. But the words he uses to express the idea, how to live for God, indicate both the identity and the mission uh, that Christian people have. Those two things are identified and is coming to the members of a local church. Identity is the first one. We are members of the household of God. That gives to us an identity. Um, this provides a great privilege to us. 
And, and then the second is mission. He goes on and says, this household of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And those refer to two supporting structures of a large building, a pillar inside, a buttress like a sway outside that holds up the building. And, and uh, in the same way, the church is appointed by God. In fact, we alone, outside of God's word and God's spirit, which he uses, it is only the church that God has appointed to represent him in this fallen world. That is all. That gives us great responsibility. You know, I, I intended this morning to speak about both the privilege and the responsibility, but we don't have enough time. So I'm just going to take the first one. I just want to talk about the first idea, the household of God. Being a Christian involves a new identity. We are members of the household of God. Being a Christian gives us an identity, and the identity is we are members of the household of God. Let's think about what this means. You have to start with the idea of a Christian, being a Christian. Now, one of the things that's become increasingly clear to me as I read and ponder the Bible, particularly the New Testament, it is that those who are identified as Christians in the Bible, those who are identified as Christians are identifying those who were members of local churches. You weren't a Christian in the New Testament unless you were a baptized member of a local church. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The first time it's used is the definitive one. It's in the book of Acts, and it says, in Antioch, that's a city in, in northern Syria, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, it may shock you to hear that you weren't a Christian unless you were a baptized member of a local church, but you might say, are you saying that every person who's not a member of a church is going to hell, is lost, is outside of Christ? And I want to say, absolutely not. I, I couldn't say that. If I said that, I would undermine the whole teaching of the New Testament, which is that we are saved. Our salvation is dependent entirely upon the work of Christ, and we receive it only through faith in what Jesus accomplished for us. Faith in Christ plus nothing. To use the New Testament terminology, a person, any person, man, woman, boy, girl, a person is justified, that is, acquitted of sin and accepted by God. A person is justified only through faith, through trusting in Christ as his Savior. The moment a person turns from sin and from trusting in any other thing to trusting in Christ alone, at that very moment, that person is transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And there is no ritual, there's no commitment, there's no church membership, there's no sacrifice, there's no name on a list that can make that transaction any more real or lasting. But that transaction is known only to God with certainty and only to the individually over time. It is not something that is known to everyone else. And the word salvation or justification of the Bible is different from the word Christian. In the New Testament, the word Christian defined, or, or, uh, defined a publicly acknowledged disciple of Christ. He or she openly confessed Christ in baptism. And at the same time, the believers in the local church openly acknowledged or confessed this person to be a Christian. That's not that way in America. 
It's that way in other places. Those of you who have been with me to Albania to a baptism, and there, there are a few here. At a baptism there, they do it at the lake, at the sea, the Adriatic, or at the river there in Shkoder. And, and when they do that, they, they go out publicly and they sing songs and all kinds of people from the community gather around who are picnicking there at the shore and they have people give testimonies and they go out and baptize them and it is a public acknowledgement. I am a Christian. I intend to live for Christ. And the church says, this is a Christian. He's one of our number. And in a Muslim society, all kinds of ramifications flow out of that. It's not a dangerous place. Muslims don't kill uh, those who defect uh, in that culture, at least not now, but it, it, is, it is a time when there are ramifications for following Christ. And I have to say, that is more like the New Testament. Hard for us to understand in a more pluralistic society with different methods of baptism and ideas about inclusiveness that aren't very scriptural. But I want you to understand that while I don't want to quibble about words, it has a very restricted meaning in the, in the New Testament. You were not publicly identified as a Christian until you confessed your faith in baptism. Gregor in Macedonia there, where he's working in an entirely Muslim culture, will not publicly acknowledge someone to be a Christian until that person openly acknowledges themselves in baptism to be a Christian. Now, when you're acknowledged as a Christian, Paul says... Uh, you are a member of the household of God. And, and uh, that's a very simple word, the household. If you're using an older Bible, uh, King James Version, and some other uh, versions, it'll say the house of God. And that is correct. That's exactly what the Greek word means, house. And like the English word house, it can mean, and we more often think of this today, the physical structure in which the family lives. But the idea here is definitely not that. It's referring not to the structure. It's referring to the occupants of the house. Today, we would call that a household. That's why it's translated that way. You are members of the household of God. And this incredibly common New Testament word is um, incredibly important. And the reason is the Christian faith was a household movement for a number of generations, for almost well, two and a half centuries, there were no churches. We, we had knowledge of no structures ever being built separately from a house and functioning as a church. There were structures in certain parts, apparently, of the Roman Empire that were relatively peaceful, that were not experiencing persecution, where large family homes over a period of time became used as a church building. But that's because the Christian movement was a household movement. And to understand it, you have to understand that the word house or household refers in the New Testament to more than simply two parents with at least one child. That's a family. But in New Testament terminology, that's not a house. A house or household was more of a noble family with all of the dependents who were included in that family or in that household. And that would be not only the parents and the children, but extended family members who either lived with them in the household or elsewhere, but were dependent on that household. All of the family servants, household craftsmen that worked on the grounds or doing different things. It might even include in a wealthy family, a steward. And the steward was a servant put over everyone in the household to dispense food, arrange all of the affairs of the household, make sure the children were taught, all of that. And it's a little bit hard for us to grasp because in America, we broke away from England where that whole idea of a stratified society with 
uh, wealthy, often noble families, and then common families. That was there, and we don't like that idea. You don't have to like that idea. You have to understand that is how it was in the New Testament. It's not mandating that we live with those ideas in mind, but it is saying, much like in Downton Abbey, that you're picturing a family not necessarily wealthy, but having property in which there are a number of people connected with and dependent on that household. That's what the church was. In fact, it's the kind of household pictured when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians describes for people how they ought to understand the leadership of a church. He's describing the apostles and the elders that they appointed, and he says this, This is how one ought to regard us. Here's how a person ought to think about us. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. And he's using this word that describes the chief servant in a family, who in one sense was under everyone else who was within the family, but was a part of the household and was in fact over the household to dispense the goods. It it is meant to give to the elders, the leaders of a church, not the idea that they are better than others, but the idea that they are appointed by God to serve the others and they ought to be respected and listened to for that result. In the mixed metaphor of the New Testament about a household, we are all brothers and sisters. There are no mothers and fathers. I am simply one of the older brothers in the family. But there are those who are servants and are like stewards. That's what the elders are, to serve and lead the others. That's what underlies this whole idea. Members of the household of God. A Christian, a person who publicly acknowledges Christ and is publicly acknowledged as a disciple of Christ is a member of the household of God. And that is meant to impart a sense of identity. You are members of the household of God. Throughout the Bible, you read of God's people. There's a promise made that it is found in every part of the Bible's story. And the promise is what God makes where he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's stated under every covenant as being one of the blessings of the covenant. A God-people relationship that God establishes with unique individuals that he places together. And it's repeated under the covenant in which we live in 2 Corinthians. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Not everyone in this world is a part of the people of God. Not everyone has the Lord as his God. Not everyone is one of his people. Only those who are members of the household of God are in that condition. And there is joy and there's confidence and there's a sense of stability that ought to belong to every Christian person who is a part of a local church. If you are a part of a living, faithful church, you have God as your father, you have the church as your mother, you have other believers as your family, You may know nothing about your ancestors at all, where they came from. You may, as some people, not even know who your father was. That doesn't matter. You are part of a line of people belonging to God called the household of God, a line that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God killed animals and clothed our first parents after the fall as an image that redemption would only come through sacrifice. The people of God were formed at that moment 
And that's the theme that develops throughout the Bible. In a confession from the 17th century, the London Baptist Confession, it says this, Christ always has had and will have in this world to the very end a kingdom of those who believe in him and profess his name. You are members of that eternal kingdom. You are citizens. You are God's people. Now, what that means is that you have an identity. And what it also means is you have to take the good with the bad. You know, family is a wonderful word, isn't it? We all love family. You could interview people on the street, 100 out of 100, if you said, do you love family? They'd say, I love family. But remember, family involves relationships. And relationships are messy. And growing up in a family is, involves challenge and joy. And too many people, when they say, I love family, it's kind of like in their mind, there's a, there's a number of books on a shelf. And, and they, they pick off the book that is titled Family Vacation. And they say, I love family. This is what I think of. Walks on the beach, eating ice cream, watching the sunset over the water, time to talk, watching movies together, playing games. But I've got to remind you, that's one volume. That's just one little part of what family is. Family is also cleaning up vomit in the middle of the night. It's children fighting. It's trying to manipulate finances to cover all of the needs. It's dirty clothes and, and dirty dishes. And it's school and it's work and it's play. All rolled into one. And church life is just an extension of family. And so it's the same. And that's why so many people opt out. Personal faith is so much easier to manage than public faith. But personal faith is not church. Any more than going on vacation by yourself is family. Sometimes I'd like to go on. If you have small children, really, if you have small children, I remember I used to go on vacation. I'd come back feeling like now I need a vacation, right? But going on vacation by yourself, that's not family. Let me tell you what family is. My father spoke Chinese. He spoke it fluently. And he learned it this way. In 1942, he was a senior in college at DePaul University in Indiana. He uh, was drafted into World War II, and um, he was allowed to finish college if he would enter as an officer. And so he was found to have a capability for languages, and they sent him to Stanford University on the West Coast, and he learned Chinese. And... uh, he learned it in six or eight months. He and two other men, they, they helped a Chinese man who was a professor at Stanford write a dictionary. I still have a handwritten copy, at least all the characters in Chinese are written in by hand, of a mimeographed copy from 1943. And uh, what he did is he learned Chinese so that he could teach English and help Chinese nationalists, that is non-communists, the communists were trying to take over the country, which they did. The nationalists, the anti-communists, some of them came to America to engage in the war, and they had to learn how to fly and to learn how to fly. He was a person who could translate for them, help them learn enough English, and so forth. And my father remained fluent in Chinese for the rest of his life. I grew up as a, a child going to Chinese restaurants in downtown Detroit, and he knew the waiters, and he talked to them. He got letters from people he knew who had returned to China, and he would get out his dictionary and translate them and all of that. And what happens is at the end of his life, he was a very old man. He was declining from Alzheimer's disease. And my brother and I took him and my mother to a Chinese restaurant on Father's Day. It turns out it was the last time we took them to a restaurant. And um, I wondered what he would do 
how much he would remember, you know, what the experience would be. So here's what happened. We went in, they sat us at a round table. There weren't many people in the restaurant at this point. And um, he started talking to the waiter, who was evidently from China, a very thick accent, began speaking to him in Chinese. And the man just looked at him like, this is a babbling old man. I mean, he couldn't understand what he was saying. And undoubtedly, my father's Chinese had to be a little rusty after 60 years. And he, uh, you know, was using small vocabulary, and who knows what his accent was like. But all of a sudden, it kicked into this waiter that this man's speaking Chinese. And he said a few things to him. And what happened is the waiter went in the kitchen, and he got all the staff to come out. And like seven people stood around the table. And my father told jokes in Chinese. And he sang children's songs that he had learned in Chinese. And they sang along with him. And he sang the Chinese national anthem from the nationalists before communism. And they laughed, and they clapped him on the back. And, and, and I felt so proud. I, I so proud that this old man could spill, still speak Chinese. Proud of being a son. And the waitstaff went back in the kitchen, and we ate dinner. And my father couldn't remember how to use chopsticks. And it ruined his whole night. And... Um, All the way home, he complained. He said, I can't believe I didn't know how to use chopsticks. And he didn't remember speaking Chinese, telling jokes, the admiration of the restaurant staff, like all of that slipped away. All he felt was that he was a failure. That's what family is. It's like that's embedded in my mind. It's a mixture of pride and joy and accomplishment and failure and shame and sorrow, and you put it all together, and that's what you have when you have family. It's not one thing. It's not just the volume that says family vacation. It's everything put together. In fact, your family undoubtedly didn't experience that or anything like it, but I'm telling you what your family is like in reality. It's like a picture in miniature of family in a fallen world. It's not all that God meant it to be in the beginning. But despite the fall, despite the sin of our first parents, God has never rescinded the creation mandate that he gave to the human race, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that command, by its very nature, requires as the first step the creation of a family. And family, when it extends itself, creates the neighborhood, and the neighborhood becomes the city and the state and the world, and that's where we all came from. God's never taken it away. Of all the ways in which he could choose to socialize human beings, he chose family, and family is God's fragile plan for human relationships. And of all the ways that God could choose to represent himself in a fallen world, he has chosen one way. He's chosen to do it through the church. No other way. No other visible, living representative of the living God and of his saving power is found in this world. We have the resources of the Spirit who has not seen and of the Word of God, which anyone can read, but it's only the church that represents him. What God does is he takes redeemed sinners, and you have to emphasize both those words. That's all that we are. Redeemed sinners... And he makes us, when he brings us to faith in Christ, he makes us a part of a family, a new family. And when we begin to recognize that as time goes on, then we become publicly and in reality a part of the extension of that family in one place. 
It's a family whose makeup is not ties of blood at all. It's not ethnicity, language, culture, race, anything like that. It's the tie of the spirit and the gospel. It's what ties us together and bonds that are tighter than the families into which we're born. That's the household of God, the church of the living God. What a priceless privilege to be a part of a living church, a family of God's people in a local community. How I blessed the day at age 19. When after reading the Bible and going to Bible studies and not understanding things, I was awakened and had meeting on a college campus to faith in Christ. I finally understood. God broke through and I realized my salvation was tied up in Jesus and what he did. And you know, at that moment, I belonged to God, but I didn't have a clue what else it meant. I didn't have any idea about family, church, the household of God. I later found out, and it shaped my whole life. I hope it shapes yours as well. What a messy way to get things done. Through fallen, redeemed sinners. But those who are in covenant with God by faith and in covenant with each other before God, the church is God's fragile plan for the redemption of humans on the earth. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, we thank you that you reveal yourself and you have so clearly in the ministry and life of Jesus, you reveal yourself as our Heavenly Father. What a word fraught with so much pain and at the same time with so much of our aspirations in life. Regardless of our experience of our fathers, we know what a father is meant to be. And we know that we are given that perfectly and completely in you. And in that, you make us your children and you draw us together to be a family. And we pray that you would, in fact, help us to understand what it means to have the identity of the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.